Good morning, Calvary Chapel. How's everybody doing this morning? All right, um, please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We'll begin in Acts chapter 6. The Lord has had us as we've been bringing us through this journey in the book of Acts as we've been looking at just amazing things. I mean, we saw the original 120 disciples that were gathered in the upper room. And then shortly thereafter, we saw that you know, 3,000 came unto the Lord. But it wasn't without some type of, you know, movement. What we saw was the Holy Spirit moved on the people. They had heard the sounds. They came out. What is that noise? You know, what is that rush, the sound of a wind? They weren't in the upper room, but they heard something. They came out and saw this. And and then 3,000 came unto salvation that day. Miraculous, miraculous. And then after that, we see what? We see the religious leaders not liking that because all of a sudden they're being drawn to Jesus Christ and not to men. Well, they don't like that because they feel, you know, well, what's that going to do? to what God's doing for us. What's that mean for the temple and the temple tax and all the things that go on with that? Well, they didn't like that, and so they continue going on. And then Jesus, as he's making his way up, or not Jesus, excuse me, Peter, as he's making his way up with John, as he's going to the temple and they're making their way up, they see the, the, this man that's lame sitting down there at the beautiful gate. And as he goes to the beautiful gate, he says, stand, rise, and walk, right? Riches and silver and gold I don't have for you, but what I give you in the name of Jesus, neither stand and walk. And he begins to go in, and then he goes, and what were they doing? Were they there for a time of sacrifice? No, because they knew Jesus Christ. It all had been paid. What they were there for, a time of prayer. It was a prayer meeting or a time of worship. So then they're in, and all of a sudden the people see this lame man. Forty years had been suffering. He's now well, and they do what? They, they turn around and they gravitate towards him, but they wait till after the worship practice. They wait till after worship and praise, after prayer time, and they go out, and Peter and John are sitting on Solomon's portico the porch there. And as they're sitting on the porch, they're, they're watching this and the people start gathering. Well, again, the religious leaders don't want anything to do with that because they, they think, well, why are these men going to Jesus and not to us? Envy. We see envy and strife. And then as it continues going on, we see what? We begin to see persecution. Why did you heal this man? Why have you done these good things? Now to you and I, we, we kind of laugh today. Why would that be a problem? But again, we know the motivation of the heart here. We see the motivation of the heart of the Sanhedrin of these religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then we see that through that, Peter once again gives a sermon, 5,000 men. Now they don't tell us women and children how many come to salvation, but 5,000 men. So now you're talking a church of somewhere around 10 to 12,000. And yet they're beaten. They're being oppressed and afflicted. And the, the church continues to multiply and grow. And then, again, they call him out. They turn around and say, what are you doing? I told you not to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. And they said, whether you judge, we have to do what's right in the eyes of God. Remember that? And they stood in the gap as prophets stand in the gap. And they went and they said, you know, they threatened him. Well, maybe we're going to hurt your children. Maybe we're going to hurt your spouse. You do what you have to do. I won't and I cannot deny the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior. That's what it means to stand in the gap as a watchman. That's what prophets did. And so they continue on like that. Well, then as we read just really in verse 41 and 42, they begin to depart in chapter five there. And what? The presence, they see that. They're rejoicing. They're coming out. They had just been beaten. Some, what is it? Uh, 29, 30 lashes like that. They had just been beating there. And then they come out and... Uh, they, they turn around and what happens? They, they're like skipping and kind of 
excited and joyful and, and, and rejoicing and already beginning to worship God in the name of Christ. Now, can you imagine what the Sanhedrin's thinking at this point? They're looking going, what do we do to these guys? We beat them and they praise God because they get to suffer in his, for his namesake. How do you battle that? Well, the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, but they don't understand. They're no longer fighting against man. They're fighting against God. And Gamaliel had even tried to tell them, hey, if this is of the Lord, you can't fight God. But this is of man. It'll go away on its own. And that brings us to our verse here in chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, now in those days, we're talking the same period of time, maybe a week or two within the same events that had been going on. And it says, when the number of the disciples was multiplying through the oppression, through the affliction, we continue to see the early church grow and multiply. There arose a complaint in the church. Now, I know that's a surprise for you that there are complaints in the church. Today, we see complaints in the church, don't we? I have to tell you this, I'm so thankful to God that he left this account in there for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, I'd come back and go, man, what are we doing? We're getting it all wrong, Calvary Chapel. What? No, I read back and say, okay, Lord. But this complaint is interesting. It's being raised by a group of Hellenists, right? We're going to read that. And what, you know, what, what are Hellenists? Those were Jews that were Greek, or spoke Greek, I should say. Jews that spoke Greek, and they would, would have read the Septuagint. They would have read the Greek Bible. And so they were accustomed to that. Now notice with me also, when they hear the complaint, do the apostles, or do, do they sit there and say, well, get away from me, we don't want to hear what you have to say. No, what did they say? Thank you. And I, and I, I want to take this moment to say, I believe, and I believe what we see here through the instruction of this passage is, you are the eyes and ears of the church. It's the body of Christ. It's not the building. It'll never be a building. It's always been the body of Christ. You are the eyes and ears. And so we see this complaint here against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, is this a New Testament teaching only? Turn in your Bibles to James, James chapter 1. If you wouldn't mind, please. Look at right around verse 27. Is this just a New Testament teaching? Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So clearly the Holy Spirit had given this to James, but is this the only place in Scripture that we see this? What about the Old Testament? Well, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll look at verse 18. When you think about this, this is right before Moses was going back up to the mountain because he had gotten angry, if you remember, and he had dropped the tablets and the tablets had been destroyed. Then God says, okay, make new stone. And then God go, he says, tells Moses to go up to the mountain. And what's he do? God himself inscribes the Ten Commandments and the tablets, the law. Okay, so we're picking right up in that because that begins at chapter 10 here. So if you look at really around verse 18, it says, he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. So we see it was always part of God's design and plan to care for the orphan and the widow. Also, if you look in you know, Deuteronomy chapter 24, a couple more chapters over there, look at verse 17. Again, we see it. This is not a New Testament concept. This is the same teaching that had been gone throughout the, 
many years. You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger of the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over to the, the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. God, it was always God's plan to provide for those in need that way. It was never the government. It wasn't something that was established as a government ordinance, but it was to be the church, one to another, to determine the needs of the people, to turn around and to, to be there. And why are we talking about the orphans? Because those that, that don't have a way to provide for themselves. Jesus Christ wants us to be there and be in that gap, stand in that gap. And what about the widows the same? There's many teachings on the widow, First Corinthians, and, and, and we've just read it already earlier in, in um, James. We're to go out, we're to, we're to minister to the widows. The widows are to also minister one to another. That's a ministry unto itself. Cindy helps to lead the widow's ministry here where many singles and widows come out together and they encourage one another. Ephesians chapter four for the work of the ministry, the equipping of the saints. And that's what we see happening. And so clearly these Hellenists, they, they, they were, it was scriptural. They come up and these widows say, hey, what's going on? We're being neglected here. We're not getting our fair portion of the food. It's, it's a fair complaint, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a legitimate fair complaint. And like I said, the body of Christ needs to be the eyes and ears. So they were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve table and serve tables like that. So, so we see something happen here. First of all, I think every pastor teacher, I'm, I know my calling. My calling is to be a pastor teacher. That's what the Lord's called me to be here, an under shepherd. It's not that any under-shepherd doesn't want to do every single thing possible, whether it's cleaning the toilets or whatever's needed, because we're to be there, we're to serve in that way. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. He's our example in likeness of Christ. But often, I, I, I suggest that if there's complaints in the church, most people, even with the complaints, they'll stay because they realize that we're not perfect and we won't be perfect until we're with Jesus Christ in heaven, right? I think most of us get that. However, there's one thing that I believe is inexcusable in any single church across any part of the world, and that is not the teaching of God's word. That's inexcusable. There's other things that you can sit there and say, well, okay, you know, they don't have this program. They maybe, you know, pastor can't remember my name every time, you know, whatever it might be, right? You can say, okay. But to not have the teaching of the word, inexcusable you have to leave, right? There's no sense in staying under something, uh, especially when you're not under the word of God. So I can guarantee you that a church, you wanna know the fastest way to empty a church out? Don't teach Jesus Christ. Don't teach the scriptures. Quickest way to empty a church. You wanna see a church dissolve and go away? Don't teach the word of God. You wanna see a church multiply and grow? Be faithful to teach the word of God. You don't have to have any programs. You don't have to have anything fancy. You don't have to have a rock concert. You don't have to have a cafe, you know, mochaccino, espresso, whatever you call those things out there. You know, the fancy ones at the big church. You don't have to have any of that. We need Jesus Christ. We need his truth. If we've got the word of God, what else do we need? One another. 
That's beautiful. That's what he says. And, and we're going to see that because as we go through this, what's going to happen? We're going to be reminded again because of what these men are going to do as they pray and they're going to, they're going to basically pick out seven or the people are going to pick out seven. We're going to see that the church begins to grow again. Now, I have to point this out that you, you, if you look at this, you want to talk about the ingredients for a church split or the ingredients for division. It's found right in this chapter. People that are being treated unfairly murmuring, that's the term we get here when it says they are complaining. The term is actually murmuring. There's a murmuring of the people, a complaining about the people. Now, as I said before, if there's complaints going on in church, I want to know about it. If there are things that are wrong in the church, I want to know about it. I don't, I don't want us to, to try to be holier than thou and say, well, I'll just turn the cheek. No, if there's someone being mistreated or if there's something that's not going on correctly, scripturally in the church, I want to know about it. The elders want to know about it. The church staff, we want to know about it so we can address it just as it's being addressed here because what that does is that removes the ability for the enemy to create division, okay? Do you see that? Because all things are being done in light. All things are being done in decency and order, the way the Holy Spirit works. So as we read here, it says that, that they, these seven or that these 12 are summoned and that they understand it's desirable that they should not leave the word of God. Praise Jesus that they had that because the natural instinct for a man, and, and I think guys, most of you will agree in here, if there's a problem, what do we want to do? Fix it, don't we? If something's broken, what do we want to do? We don't want to just necessarily listen and pray. We want to go what? We want to go immediately in and fix it, right? So I, I praise a God that he's given us this account that he's showing, wait a minute. That doesn't mean that every single thing that's supposed to happen, I, I, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to necessarily react and go into, I gotta be the one to fix that. Often I need to humble myself and go to my knees and pray to the Lord just as we all do in our personal lives. As, as men, as the pastors of your homes, you need to be doing this likewise. Praying over your wives, over your children, praying for God's direction and leading. And God's going to be the one that adds increase. He's going to be the one that figures out what to do and gives you direction and leading. And here we see for, you know, in chapter six, one of the first times we see right here, deacon. That's that word, and serve tables. That's deacon right there. So we begin to see this idea of, of deacons. Um, you know what, let's look at that. Turn First Timothy chapter three. I think this is important because we're getting introduced to this idea in the early church of what is a deacon? One of the things that I love about this fellowship is that not only are we family here, because if you're a visitor today, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. But hopefully you've already been welcomed four or five times by different people as you walk through these doors. Maybe a hug, maybe a smile. This is a family. We're the body of Christ. We pray together, we stay together. And so when we look at this, Without the volunteers that we have here, we'd have no church. I mean, for a young fellowship, 100 and plus people, we have over 30 or 40 volunteers that every week in some capacity are doing something to be able to serve the body of Christ. Whether it's teaching in the children's ministry, whether it's you know, the ushers greeting, whether it's uh, the, the prayer teams, whether it's the teams going out to make sure the parking spaces are all done, whether it's the, the church office and staff. I mean, every week, all of you, are stepping up for the Lord, not for man, but for Jesus Christ and the body of Christ to serve. We have a very giving and serving church. And I believe that's because this church is founded on scripture, not man's wisdom. It's Jesus. 
and he's glorified because of it. But he also gives us very specific qualifications in this idea of deacon. We can have deacon and deaconess as we see it throughout scripture, men and women that serve. So look at verse eight of chapter three here. If you wanna look at what it looks like in God's design, he says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. At Calvary Chapel Harrisburg, not given to any wine. If you're a deacon here and you serve in children's ministry, no wine, no alcohol. You're gonna be controlled by something. I'd rather you be controlled by the Holy Spirit, amen? Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because these little ones go out and if you're sitting in a restaurant or you're, you're doing something and all of a sudden they see you know, Mr. Such and Such or, or Elder Such and Such or whoever, or Pastor Such and Such, and they're doing what? They're turning around and, and drinking something. Well, Mommy, can I have some of that? Well, no, honey, that's not really good for you. It makes you kinda, however you decide to explain that to your children. It makes you kinda feel a little funny, right? You might say. But, you know, Calvary, we don't need that. We don't need those questions. We want to be above reproach in all aspects. We never have guys alone with women when counseling. We do all things with decency and order so that God is glorified and he reigns. But it says, not given to much wine, nor greedy for money. And everybody that's a volunteer here is going, we don't get paid at all. We, we, we understand not greedy. Everybody that's here is volunteering. They serve. Praise Jesus holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. What's that talking about? Obedience. But let these also first be tested, that, that, that then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So there's this idea of testing. Why? To make sure we don't see that we produce, or they don't produce pride. They don't get puffed up. So there's a period of time where we, we see as deacons, we allow them to serve. We watch them. The elders watch them. I watch them. Men and women, body of Christ, you watch them and encourage them, pray for them, right? And that's what we're to do because we want to be found blameless. And then also there's a scripture in here, verse 11, that says, hey, and wives, helpmates, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house well. This sometimes gets taken out of scripture. This, this is talking about polygamy, not having multiple wives at one time. This is not talking about someone who's um, had a divorce years ago. Uh, maybe they weren't saved, or if they were saved, they were abandoned by their wife or their husband or something like that. You're not disqualified. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching at this point, not having two wives at once, which guys... One wife, are we blessed? We're blessed. Guys are like, where was he going with that one? <laughs> for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves, look at this, beautiful. For those who have obtained for themselves a good standing and great boldness in faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I think of Stephen. I think of Philip. The two people we're going to be reading about in chapter 7 and 8. It's beautiful. So this is how God lays out this idea of serving in tables. There's, there's qualifications where to, where to live up. Because if, if we read the, even the ones for overseers or the ones that for pastors or elders that way, if you look at those scriptures, which is the first half of 1 Timothy 3, it also adds additional conditions in there, right? Like you need to be able to manage your home well. Your children need to be in subjection. They need to be obedient. Otherwise, if you can't manage your own home, how could you manage the affairs of God, right? God is very, um, you know, he puts a high premium on this because the stakes are high. I mean, we're talking about souls here. We don't play church. We don't come in here and go through the motions. 
We don't play church. And the stakes are high. We're talking about people and their souls and their spiritual formation and relationships. So back into uh, chapter 6 there of Acts, we go back and we see that um, this is the first time we see the idea of deacon here. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men. Now, we're given qualifications here. Four different things he tells us to look for when you're looking also for deacon or deaconesses. First one is, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you. What is that telling us? People that are in the body of Christ. We don't turn around and go and hire people outside and bring them in, even if you're a successful business person. Well, Wall Street. I mean, years ago, I can remember years ago, my pastor up in Finger Lakes, you know, he preached on this very topic. Many times we had people that came in that were a success. Maybe they were out of Hollywood or, or maybe they were Wall Street. I mean, today we think of someone in Wall Street coming in to manage affairs. We would go, well, why would we want somebody from Wall Street? Look at all the banking crises. But you got to remember, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have that before us necessarily. So you'd look at someone in Hollywood and, and they were well esteemed or thought of well in the world. Wow, that's such and such. I can't believe. And they would be welcomed up to the pulpit to speak and to share. But he's careful to warn us here. Hey, brethren, seek out from among you. Why among you? Because it's relationship. You know them. They've got to know you. You know them. You know if they're under the word, if they're holding the prominence of the word. Jesus Christ said that his word is esteemed higher than his very name. That's what it says in scripture. His word is esteemed higher than his very name. There's a high premium on the word of God. He said seven men, okay, so that was number one. Number two, of good reputation, right? Where do, where do we get this? Marta, martyrio in, in the Greek here. What does martyrio mean? What, it actually means witness. It means witness. This is what we see here. So this good reputation is, is someone that's a witness. That's number two, a good witness. So this doesn't mean sort of like, you know, they're good half the time, the other half the time they're doing what's right in their own eyes. No, this means they are full of the Holy Spirit as well. Right, number three, and wisdom, number four. So these aren't people that are sort of spiritual some days, they come in and then, you know, other days not feeling so spiritual. Now I'm not talking about when we come in, we don't, again, we don't play church, we don't walk through the doors and go, I am just happy to be alive today. Aren't you so happy? Everything's so great, life is so beautiful. Now, if we really believe that and are feeling that, hey, praise the Lord. But we're not to fake it when we come through the doors if we're really hurting and we're broken. We should be able to open up and share that, man, I am broken. I'm dealing with this circumstance in my life. This is, you know, I, I just found out I got this call from the doc or, or this happened with my job. I just lost my job. What am I gonna do? We don't need to pretend. We don't need to pretend we have it all together. Nobody here's arrived. I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. Anybody that tries to pretend they have it all together, I, I, look, come see me after. We, we have other problems we gotta go through. You know, who are we in Christ? We all had sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody has arrived. Nobody's Jesus. Doesn't that just immediately take it down two levels and you're sort of like, I can be me in Christ. I can rest. Now he's not saying, hey, go out and do what's right in your eyes and enjoy all the disobedience and all the things that you know, prick your, your heart that way. No, he told us he desires mercy and obedience more than sacrifice. Samuel, for Samuel. So we, we, we know this, but it's important to look it out. With whom you may appoint over this business. This is what you're to do. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's, as an under-shepherd, that's my primary responsibility, is to prayer, as I, as I mentioned, there are many things that 
probably most of you would be like, ah, Pastor Matt, you screwed this up. You, whatever, you did this, you did that. Look, I walk faith to faith like you walk faith to faith. You know, I mess things up, whatever, okay? I'm, I'm, we're all putting our pants on one leg at a time. Nobody's better than anybody else. We've already talked about that. But I'm, I can tell you one thing. If the word of God is ever not taught here, you need to get up and walk out. Because that's what the word of God is saying. You need to get up and walk out. If you ever walk into a church and you begin to hear somebody espouse their wisdom and not the word of God, run. Run. Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches doing that today. We need to be praying for the body of Christ because good people are going in and they're being led astray. They're being led astray because they're not positioning themselves or subjecting themselves to the living word of God. It can happen to any one of us, can it? We don't judge those people and look at them as though, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Sometimes we just don't know, or we get off, or we get, you know, I don't know if the word is, you know, I think of what the scriptures say, it, it calibrates us. It gets us on that narrow path. But often we, we think we're on the narrow path, but we can easily find ourselves on the wide road, leading to destruction. So he tells us, look, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry and the word, right? It's inexcusable not to have the word of God being taught. And the saying, please, this word in the Greek here, please, isn't like, well, I'm very pleased. It's excited. They're actually excited about this. They were excited that the prominence of the word of God was being elevated, that they were able to look at it and go, yes, the word of God is being taught the whole multitude, and they chose seven here, right? Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. See those two things? We had already got the qualifications. Philip, right? So chapter seven is almost entirely dedicated to Stephen. Chapter eight is almost entirely dedicated to Philip. Procurus, he's one of the few people out of this list here of seven that we know a little bit about. He was the secretary, tradition tells us, to John, the Apostle John. So he would write a lot of the things that Apostle John would, would give. Um, this, this gentleman wrote that. Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, right? A proselyte from Antioch. So we, here we see this Nicholas was um, basically a convert to Judaism and now to Christianity to, in that way. That's all we know. But what is one other thing we can look at these names here? And what can we else, what else can we pull from this list here of these seven names? What else immediately kind of jumps out at us when we read their names? The Greek. All seven of these men are Greek men. Who were the widows that were in need? The Greek women, the Hellenists. Right? The Greek-speaking Jews. So what do we see that God did? God raised up from their own as well to provide, to help, so that they too would understand it. Now, as we read a lot of, as we get into chapter seven and we read through a lot of this, we're gonna find that a lot of what Stephen is gonna quote when he goes, because he's gonna be brought in front of the Sanhedrin that way, the council, a lot of the words he's gonna use are actually from the Septuagint. As, so chapter seven goes, because Stephen, being a Greek speaker, would have used what? The LXX. He would have read from the Septuagint. So a lot of the words we get are not necessarily Greek that would have been just translated, but it's, it's truly from the Septuagint, which is, dates back to somewhere around two, well, 300 BC to 200 BC in that time. And why do we get the name Septuagint? Where does it come from? 
70, the name of the men. There were 70 men that were brought together in a council to help uh, by the leading of the Holy Spirit through the inspiration to do the translation of all 66 books in the Greek. So that way when they go to the Old Testament and the New Testament, that they would be able to understand the words that were being used in, in both the Old Testament and New Testament that way by searching and reading the Greek. So we read here, whom they sat before the apostles and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Now notice with me, they didn't confirm this. They were affirming it. What is the difference? When we see someone that's being raised up as a deacon or an elder, are we turning around and laying hands on them to say that, you know what, we're, we're turning around and confirming, are we, we're, we're, the, we're sending them out because we are somehow giving them the ability or gifting for the office that they're serving in. Is that what we do here? Certainly not. What do we do? We're affirming the move of what the Holy Spirit has already done. We recognize what the Holy Spirit's done in the life of that individual. All we're doing is affirming it and praising God and asking for protection for, that, for the life that we're praying over. That's all these men were doing here. They weren't somehow, because this can get mistranslated, that's why you see guys coming up, oh, I gotta pray on you, brother, I gotta give you what you need so you can do it. Really? You, a man, are gonna get, how about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Father? That's who gives the anointing and the gift. We just get the ability to recognize it and we affirm it. And that's all God's ever asked us to do. So we, we turn around and we look at this and it says, okay, and they prayed and laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread. Do you see that? When you do everything according to the scripture, what happens? Church growth. All these programs, the millions of dollars that are spent on people trying to, how do we grow our church? How do we do this? Look, it's simple. Read the word of God. Get rid of the nonsense. Stop subscribing to man's wisdom and ideas. Read Psalm 118.8, right? Psalm 118.8. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust man or God? The word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, early church tradition tells us there was somewhere between 15 and 20,000 priests at that time. So even if you take a third, which is what tradition tells us would have, would have been part of this, you're talking somewhere between five and 7,000 priests that would have came to faith and they would have began teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you see how miraculous this is? No church program, no special seminary, no special anything else. You know what it is? It's good old fashioned being led by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. That is all you ever need. Don't let any man or a lie from the pit of hell convince you otherwise. You need Jesus Christ and the leading and the resources of the Holy Spirit, the word of God. That's all you ever need and that's all we've ever needed throughout all of history. There is no methodology or formula. So they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now we're gonna move into verse eight here and we're gonna be learning more about Stephen here, this awesome man. He was a deacon. And Stephen, full of faith and power, Deutimus, right? That's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and the resources, did great wonders and signs, that's miracles there, among the people. Just like the early church, just like we saw Jesus Christ doing. 
Then there arose from some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now the freedmen would have been a group at that time. Rome had, Rome had put many men into slavery or they sold themselves into slavery. And often they would buy themselves out of slavery by another family member or they would work their slavery off or their time off. Once they were freed like that, they would gather together and they actually gathered together the synagogue of a freedman. And that's what they were called. And they would gather together. They were like-minded. They had come out of slavery together. They understood their struggles together. And they came to, to be under the, the word like that. Then we see the, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, right? That's from North Africa in that area. We actually... Um, we'll read more about that as we get into Paul's epistles there. And those from Sicilia... Now, that should seem really familiar. That's where Saul from Tarsus was from. How do we know that? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, verse 39. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture every single time. Chapter 21, verse 39. But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So we see even Paul, right? Where he would have been from this area, and Asia disputing with Stephen, that's modern day Turkey. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which they spoke. Now, this is really interesting here, because as these men are hearing this, it says they're not able to resist it. In other words, they couldn't argue the truth of God's word. They, they couldn't find a problem with it. Every single thing they were saying, they were acknowledging, yes, Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. They, they were, yup, yup, yup. They couldn't resist it. So what they did is they got angry. Now, we've seen this before. This is going to remind us so much of what we saw with Christ leading up to his resurrection, to his death and suffering on the cross. Because what did they do? They gathered a council together. They figured out how they were going to trap him, right? That's exactly what they did. And then they made false accusations against him. Almost the same false accusations we're going to see here. You know, you're trying to make yourself a king. You're not following Moses. You're going to destroy the temple. Now you're a terrorist to Jerusalem. Those are all the same things they accused Jesus Christ of. So let's look in verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, that's the idea that they're hired men telling them the lie. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, the same thing they did to Jesus Christ. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them and seized him and brought him into the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the 70 plus one, the Pharisees and Sadducees that are there. He, they bring Stephen in there. The way it would have gone, it was a half circle. So if you picture a half circle like that, they would have put Stephen right in the middle. It was slightly elevated, so they would have been looking down upon Stephen, Stephen a very sort of intimidating place to be, you would think. But look at the boldness that this man has because he's full of the Spirit. Remember we read that? He's full of the Spirit of God, the promise of the Father, the baptism, and the boldness that can only come by the Holy Spirit. So it says they brought him into the council. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemy words against the holy place and the law. What are they talking about? The temple? They're talking about the temple? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Jesus said there would be no stone left unturned. And if you look in AD 70 and you study church history, that's exactly what happened. And why did it happen? It actually happened because Roman greed. They had all the gold that was in the temple 
And as it was caught on fire by one of the servants that weren't, or one of the centurions that weren't paying, they, the whole temple got caught on fire. What happens when you take gold and you put it in a fire? What does it do? Melts. And what happens when it melts, it runs out? The stones, they didn't use grout the way we use grout today. These stones were thousands of pounds. You know, we talked about that, and we'll talk about it more when we get to Solomon. And, and, um, and really, yeah, Solomon, when he builds a temple, these stones that they hewed out, huge, huge, thousands of pounds, up to 5,000 pounds each stone. And so because they were able to sit and they didn't need grout, what happens when the gold melts? It runs through, and it would go through the grout of the stone. And because of the greed of the Romans, they weren't going to allow that. What did they do? They turned around and they lifted every single stone and they went in with a knife or a sharp instrument and they scraped the gold from the area where the grout would normally be in a wall. They scraped the gold off. Every single stone was moved because of the gold and getting to the foundation where it went to the floor and through the, just as Jesus said. So they're, they're turning around and they're going through this and they're saying, well, and this is what he said. You know, and he said, and which Moses delivered to us. Now they're talking about the law and also the doctrine of Moses. We're reading that on Wednesday nights in Exodus, right? We're getting there. We're, we're going to be moving into that area pretty soon. Verse 15, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as a face of an angel. So they look upon Stephen, they're looking down at him, and it's the best they can describe. Sadducees don't even believe in angels, right? So they're looking down and they're kind of looking at his face and they're just, the best way they can describe it is what would be this innocence, uh, purity of a face of an angel. So they're all looking at him. Nobody's speaking. You've got these 70 plus men. They're kind of staring at Stephen. Stephen's probably just, you know, looking at them. What's going on? What's up? You know, and they're all just standing there quiet. And finally, we're going to see Caiaphas here. He's going to break the silence. Chapter 7, then the high priest, that's Caiaphas, said, are these things so? Well, what things? I mean, Caiaphas, he's only going to be in office for another four years here. So what, 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 what things? Well, what are the two things they just accused him of? The blasphemies, right? And the idea of rejecting Moses and the customs of Moses and Jesus Christ. That, that's what they're talking about. We just read it in verses 13 and 14 and what have you. So is it so? And he said, now, this is awesome. We are getting ready to move into the longest sermon we have in the entire book of Acts. The other part we're getting ready to move into, in all of the New Testament, we have more detail about Stephen's death than anyone else other than Jesus Christ himself. For God to dedicate this much time, this specific leading of the Holy Spirit to give us, he wants us to learn something from this. There's something he's going to show us about this. One, we see revelation that even in we're in the book of Exodus, we've been kind of coming to Acts chapter seven because he's given us even revelation about what was going on with Moses at the time. So there's, there's, there's a lot here. I mean, so much uh, like a smorgasbord of spiritual truth here. So he, he says, look, then the high priest and these things so, and they said, brethren and fathers. Now, it's important to look at this because a lot of people get confused. Well, Father, I, I, you know, that reminds me of the Roman Catholic Church. They, they call their priests fathers, right? This, this word is petar, if you know the word in the Greek. And if you look in Thayer's lexicon as an example or you look in any teaching, this isn't the word and translated, I appreciate what the New King James is doing as a translation, but if you really look to the Greek, this really means ancestor. 
it, it, go back and look at the Thayers. I can give you the, the actual Greek name, but it's, 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 more content, um, it's more in context to speaking and actually calls it right out in Thayers by the, pre- the actual verse. It says chapter seven, you know, verse two, and right in Thayers' lexicon and says ancestor, not to be understood as we would say like father is a reverence. This is not speaking to calling anybody father or reverent in any capacity here. Because it'll make more sense as we read to it because he's talking about and fathers, plural. What's he talking about? Our ancestors, their ancestors. Again, petar in in the Greek. Listen, he says, the God of glory appeared to our fathers Abraham when we, and there he goes to use it again, our father. Again, if you look this up in the Greek, we see it's used over 268 times, 150 times specifically in this context to refer to an ancestor. And that's exactly how it's listed in the, in, in the Thayer's. I, Biberians, go look it up. But it says, our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, right? And said to him, get out of your country and from all of your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. He begins going back. What's he doing? He's meeting them where they are. He's beginning with the Jews. He understands they're under the law. They subscribe to Moses. They aren't going to understand all this. They're going to go back to Abraham because they considered Abraham the father of what? The Jews, even though Abraham was what? A Gentile, right? He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he makes his way over to Haran. Here's the word of the Lord because God told him to go away from, you know, move out from your family like that. His father, Terah, was what? He was an idol worshiper. Abraham would have been an idol worshiper initially. He actually, we read on that he, they made idols and sold idols. So his grandfather, right? So it's very interesting. He's, he's giving us the historical context, not just for you and I within the New Testament, but he's talking to these 70 plus one, and they're all going to be doing this. They're going to be nodding their heads going, yup, absolutely. They can absolutely go along with all of this here. Come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out to the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to the land which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham um, had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to the descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years in what? Egypt, right? We're reading that in Exodus. Verse seven, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they came out and served, and they'll come out and serve me in this place. Where is this place? The Sinai, right? It's the Sinai. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot um, yeah, begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Now, we talked about this when we were going through Genesis. Medical doctors have figured out that day one, two, three, four, five, a baby has not reached their point of immunity to infection and all those things. But on the eighth day, they actually get that peak point of immunity or from infectious disease. They're at their highest level, if I can say it that way, on the eighth day, just as God had called it out. I mean, it's miraculous. I mean, they didn't figure this out on their own. They didn't have any, you know, think of all the modern technology. We have to test blood and to be able to look at all. They didn't have that. They had the word of the Lord. They had the Holy Spirit guiding them. And when they obeyed, we begin to see all these things revealed to us now that the scientific community is showing, but God's word has been saying for thousands and thousands of years is truth. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs became envious and sold Joseph. Now, what is he doing here? 
Well, he's getting ready to turn the tables. We'll see that in chapter uh, 7 here. When we get to verse 51, he's going to put them on trial. But right now they have on him on trial. And what's about to happen is he's going to go through and he's going to list Joseph, he's going to list Moses, and he's going to say, you stiff-necked people, you have constantly denied our fathers, our ancestors, that God had sent. And now you too deny the just one. Who's the just one? Jesus Christ. He's making his case to say, just as you missed it every single time, guess what you did again? You missed it. And see, that's how he's going to draw them in. So when the patriarchs becoming envious with Joseph, in, in, um, envious sold Joseph into Egypt, talking about Israel when you look at the tribes there. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. So God sent a deliverer. And Joseph became, remember when we went through that in Exodus, Joseph too became a deliverer. Without Joseph, through the inspiration, again, the leading of God, they would have all starved. The seed wouldn't have been able to come from the line of Israel because they had the famine, right? So God used Joseph to deliver not only Egypt, because Egypt was part of this, but also the 11 tribe, the 12 tribes that way. But God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers, ancestors, found no sustenance. Right? He's pulling it together now. He's making his point. Just as uh, Joseph was a deliverer, Jesus is the deliverer. But when Jacob heard that they were, there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. We're told in Genesis, 70 people. But what this is also adding in is the two grandbabies, the two grandbabies at this point. So you had the two grandbabies and their children, you get to 75. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died and he and our fathers, again, ancestors, same translation, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the fathers of Shechem, the ancestors of Shechem. Verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, even under oppression, affliction, and slavery, till another Who's this other king? Well, what happened? Remember the high coast king? We talked about it on Wednesday. On Wednesdays when we in Exodus, the high coast kings, they were shepherd kings. And that's why, you know, normally shepherds would have been an abomination to Egypt. But as they were able to come in and see these kings and the shepherds, they gave them the land of Goshen and separated them from the rest of the Egyptians. But the high coast kings were more favorable to the Egyptians because they too were shepherd kings. Okay, but this new king comes in. Remember, he doesn't know Joseph and he didn't know, you know, he didn't know his family or all the things he had done and they're not Hykos kings, which means to them, all shepherds are an abomination and they want to be separated from them. So this king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. He went to the maidservants. Do you remember that? The midwives, and what did he say? Any male baby born under the year of age of two, kill him. And the midwives said, we will not honor the government. No, we'll honor God. When God's word and the government come into uh, you know, compromise that way, we'll always honor God 
and we can't follow what the government says. And, and we see that they were blessed for that, actually. Now, we're, again, I want to be careful. I'm not calling the church or anybody in the church to rise up against our government we're to, because Peter also tells us we're to be subject to the government. We're to pray for our leaders. But if they turn around and they come against the Bible or Scripture or they ask you or I to do something that's against Scripture, as Peter said, well, whether this is right in the eyes between you or God, for me, I can't do it. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as, as her own son. And Moses was learned. Now, this is revelation. We don't get this in the Old Testament. If you remember when we were on Wednesday, we came to this specific verse when Moses goes, but, but um, God, I can't do it. And God's like, why can't you do it, Moses? You know, I'm going to annoy you. I'm sending you. Well, God, I, I'm not very good with speech. I, I can't talk. I, I, yeah, no, this is a bad idea. Pick anybody else, right? And what was the sin there? The sin was Moses was not making himself available. Remember we talked about that? He wasn't making himself available. That was the sin there. It wasn't that he went back to God and challenged him. It was the sin that he wasn't making himself available. But here we get the revelation. Wait a minute, Moses. Were we being completely forthright in this? I don't know. I, you be Bereans. But it says, And Moses learned in all wisdom and other of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So here we see the second time now. We're talking about Moses as a deliverer. Remember at first he was a prince. Josephus tells us he was in the line for the throne in Egypt. So he's, he's literally being setting up another deliverer, but they reject him. As a matter of fact, they come up and say, who are you to, to say, you killed that Egyptian. Who are you, are a prince or a ruler or a judge over us? And then 40 years, God sends him out. He goes into, the, into that land in the wilderness with the Midianites. Remember that? Jethro's father, you know, he, he's given a wife like that and has two children. And what happens? For 40 years, he's a shepherd, not of his flock, but of his father-in-law's flock, Jethro. And when he's humble and of no, uh, you might say, no character that way of, of, of an heir of a prince, but when he's humble before the Lord, He's 80 years old. His brother Aaron is 83 years old, his older brother at that point. Now God goes, um, he appears to him at a burning bush and says, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, come on, I'm going to send you down to Egypt. You're going to deliver. And Moses is going, well, wait a minute. I tried that 40 years ago. That didn't work out so good. God, yeah, that was your plan. Now we're going to do it my way. And you watch how the doors open. So we read, for they suppose that it was his brethren that would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they didn't understand because it was Moses' plan and not God. But he's again showing how they're going to reject Moses. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You see, Moses thought his prestige would, would naturally make him heir apparent to this. Why wouldn't they listen to Moses? Why wouldn't they listen to you or I? Why wouldn't they listen to someone that has you know, a Harvard degree or all these fancy credentials? Why wouldn't they? <laughs> Whose wisdom is that? Is that God's or man's? Every single time. Verse 28, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptians yesterday? 
And please understand, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with education. We have many people in this fellowship that have doctor degrees that are very brave men, and praise God they're on our team. And God's using them mightily in higher education and other places to open doors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's when we turn around and we seek to use it for our providence or pleasure, that's when it can be out of the will of God. We're, we're servants of God. We're blood-bought. Our lives no longer belong to us. Verse 29, Then at that saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord as he came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. And here he is in verse 35 about to make his second point. This Moses, just in case you didn't know which Moses he's talking about, right? Like there's multiple Moseses walking around. But this Moses, whom they circled at in your Bible, what did they do? Rejected. Second time, Joseph was first, Moses is second. Rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Is this, is the one God sent? God sent him to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him, that's Jesus, in the bush, a Christophany. He brought them out, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said, the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation. Now, if you look at that word in the Greek, um, what is that word? That's ekklesia. What does the word ekklesia mean in the Greek? This is why we know he's using the Septuagint because there's a different word he would have used for the Greek as a synagogue or something like that. What he's talking about the congregation, he's using the Septuagint because this is found in the Septuagint, the ecclesia. It's the church. That's what it means in the Greek, the church. He says, this is he who was in the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles. What are those living oracles to give us? What is the living oracles? It's the word of God. It's the Ten Commandments, but it's the word of God. When, when we read in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament or even the New Testament, the law of the prophets, right? The ordinances and the prophets, what's he talking about? He's talking about the whole Bible, all 66 books, the counsel of God. So he's talking about these living oracles here to give us the word of a God whom our fathers, our ancestors would not obey but rejected it. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Again, showing a pattern of rejection here. Saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us or to be before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. That's Exodus chapter 32. We haven't got there yet on Wednesday. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Can you imagine the Sanhedrin at this point? They are nodding. Yup, yup, he was rejected. We didn't listen to Moses. Yup, yup. And now he's about to turn it in, in verse 51 here. We're almost there. Hang in there with me. We're going to get to verse 51. He's going to turn it right on him, and they're going to go, 
He's talking about the just one, Jesus Christ. And they are going to get so angry because they're going to see that they have been just guilty of the very same thing that their ancestors have been guilty from. You ever had that happen to you where somebody's talking to you about something and they give you an example? We saw it in the Old Testament. Remember Nathan or, um, yeah, with David? Do you remember that? The prophet went up. Now, if somebody should done, you know, king, if somebody should do this, that, and the other thing, what would you do? Well, he should be, he should be killed. You know, remember that? That's what Nathan said to David. And then what did David say? Well, who was this man? It was you, king. Oh, wow. Right? Has God ever done that for you? He's done that for me where, you know, I, I think I have an understanding about something. And it's an interesting understanding from my perspective, my shoes and where I'm sitting or standing. But God's always reminded me, walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It's not a proverb of, of the Bible, but it's a proverb the Lord's given me. Put yourself in somebody else's circumstances and begin to understand what they're going through, the affliction, the oppression, the suffering, before you render any judgment upon them. We don't need more of Job's counselors. We learn from that from scripture. We don't need to be Job's counselors. You know, when you have friends like that, who needs enemies? Verse, 40, verse, uh, verse 42, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech. Remember that? That was cruel worship. That's where they were bringing forth their babies and they would put them in this statue and sculpture that they would heat up with fire and they would place it and it would burn the baby alive. Israel had begun to do this, had to be able to, begun to fall into this pagan worship. And that's why God had wanted them to be holy and separate, holy and set apart that way. We are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? That way, I always say it the backwards, but you know what I mean. You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Revan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you way and beyond in Babylon. He's basically convicting them. Look, remember what God said to our fathers that rejected his messengers? What are you doing right now, Sanhedrin? What are you doing right now, Supreme Court? That's what he's saying. What are you doing? Look at the days we're living in where they're trying to redefine marriage and gender and everything else and identity. What are you doing? How dare you? How dare you think you have the ability to, to redefine God's creation, God's children? How dare you? We need to stand in the gap, Christians. Modern day prophets, watchmen, watch women, standing in the gap. Verse 44, our fathers, ancestors, had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, and he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen which our fathers, having received it, in turn also brought with Joshua. Some of you in your Bibles might have it as Jesus. That's the Greek, again, he's, he's reading from the Septuagint, the Greek translation for Joshua. The Hebrew name is Joseph, or Joshua, excuse me, I mean, but the Greek name is Jesus, right? So we get that. Into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for, God, for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house, a temple, 
right? However, the most high God does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. We read that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Remember that? He goes, to, God, God can't be, what is that saying? Does God meet us here in his presence? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit is among us. When two or more are gathered in name, he is present. Not just in judiciary re- review of you know, the Matthew 18 context when we have problems in the church and there's complaints, but he is among us and in us and through us all the time. When the body of Christ is gathered together, he is present. He's present. It's not the building. It's the body of, the Christ. It's the body of Christ. But what the point is, I think we get this, is he's not limited to this building. He's not limited to these four walls. When you walk out of here, and many of us will go for a, you know, a Sunday brunch or something like that, and you're sitting together down with other believers, and you're fellowshipping, and you're talking about what the Lord showed you this morning, and everything like that, and you're gathered together, and you're encouraged. Is not God present there? Of course he is. He's not limited spatially. He's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not, or has my hand not made all these things? And then now he just lays it out. He lays it down hot right now, man. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's a great way to win friends and influence people. If you lead off like that every single time and say, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, people generally warm up to you, right? No, I mean, this is boldness of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is boldness of the Holy Spirit. He's not afraid for his life. He's not afraid they're going to kill him. He's not having any anxiety or fear at the moment. He's got boldness. You see, I often suggest that when you have anxiety or depression, when you get the moving of the Holy Spirit on you, it's replaced with the boldness of the Holy Spirit. I rarely ever see somebody full of anxiety and full of boldness of the Holy Spirit at the same time. I don't see that. If you're, bo- if you're full of the Holy Spirit and bold and you're going out and you're about your Father's work, you aren't even thinking about the things to be nervous about. You're simply just trying to obey and you're in it. And next thing you know, you get back home or wherever you are, if it's a mission, whatever danger you were in, and all of a sudden you're like, Lord, how did you get me through that? If I would have known that was coming, I wouldn't have got out of bed today, right? He says, you stiff neck and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. That's his first point that he's making. Now he's going to make his second point. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's letting it fly, man. And they killed those. I wish I could have been there. And they killed those. I'm serious. We're going to go back in the video library in heaven. We got to watch this one back, right? Can you imagine the 70 plus one? They're sitting there at this point and they're like, you know, every single mouth is open. All the jaws are dropped. And Stephen's like, oh, and I'm not done yet. You know what I mean? But a bit of humble, a humbleness to him. But he wasn't done yet, right? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Who's that just one? Jesus. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the direction of the angels and have not kept it. Now who is in this meeting right now? Think with me. We've talked about it. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul of Tarsus is a man that was trained under Gamaliel, right? We know from all tradition, actually, the Bible tells us. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Tradition says he was, his, his appetite for reading was so voracious that he could not stop reading. As a matter of fact, we read in the scriptures, and we'll, we will read in the book of Acts, where it says, Paul, your search, your drive to read, to study this, is making you what? Mad. It's making you crazy, he says. 
He was voracious with the word of God. He couldn't get enough of it. Isn't that what happens when you're a born-again believer? You love the word. You can't get enough of it. The love that, I mean, we're, we've been here an hour and five minutes. Some of you, your, 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 your tushies are falling asleep. You're sitting here, you're going, oh, you know, but I don't see anybody getting up and walking out. We can't get enough. Keep going, keep going. Well, so you know, we will stop at verse 60. So praise the Lord, there is an end in sight. But the point you're getting at, because you realize, oh, here he goes. He's going on for two hours today. No. <laughs> no. But when, I mean, when really the, word is, uh, the Lord is speaking to us through his word, is it, aren't you just hungry for that? The truth and just what God's doing? It's like that dry and weary land and our, our souls can get dry like that. And it's like, God, you're just, you're ministering to us, Lord. Keep doing it. Don't stop, Lord. I need this. I need this, Jesus. So these men, I'm sure, while Paul's hearing that, Gamaliel might have been his mentor, but I suggest to you this morning, ultimately, when he reads the life of Stephen, when he reads Stephen's Bible, the testimony of his life, you know what I say that. He reads the scripture. He reads the testimony of Stephen. Stephen will become his mentor. His, his master, that Jesus will always be his master, but when he follows, well, pastor, how can you say that? Because when we go through the Pauline epistles, we will see more quotes from this passage than through most of the other passages, that anything that we see extra biblical of Josephus writing about Gamaliel, his writings from the other rabbinic teachings, there's more that is quoted from this one passage, which is why I believe Jesus Christ gave us so much detail into this. Because just as it was for Paul, it is for you and I today. Because he's seeing this played out. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself is going to say to him, why are you kicking against the goads? Why would you say to that somebody if they weren't struggling? You see, he saw this. And he's going to be forever different and changed from what's about to happen here as I read 54 and on. He won't be able to rest and sleep correctly. And as a matter of fact, his initial reaction is to be angry and bitter. He's going to destroy every single Christian because he cannot stand it until the point Jesus Christ frees him and he's able to release it all. Do you see this? This is, this is why he's given us this detail. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 54, when they heard these things, or did I skip down here? Of whom you have become the betrayers and murderers who have received by the law the direction of the angels and have not kept it. Verse 54 now. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him. That doesn't mean they took their teeth and rah, rah, rah. they went off to bite him. That's not what this is. They're angry. They're gritting down. They're, they're biting their jaws. They're, they're tense. They're angry with their teeth. You see, what this is telling us is their hearts was, and actually you look at the translation in the Greek, what it really speaks to more is their hearts were sawn It'll say that their hearts were cut, cut to the heart, we get the term. The idea really connotes a sawn of the heart. Now, some of you this morning, this may be the first time you're hearing this. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're backslidden, or maybe there's something else going on in your life. And God is just ministering to your heart. And you're sitting here, and you're going, yes, Lord. You're, you're like these Sadducees and Pharisees. You're nodding, going, yeah, I'm tracking. I'm tracking all of this. But notice with me this morning, Jesus didn't take out a saw. If you went into heart surgery today, do you want the surgeon coming in with like a, you know, a big old chainsaw, you know, to do a, to do a, you know, a heart surgery? Absolutely not. What would you say? Hold on, hold on, man. There's got to be another way. Where's that surgical instrument thing you use? That little thing. Get the little thing out, right? 
And we see that in the Greek, that's what it also says in Pauline's writing, in the Pauline writings as well, that he doesn't use a Thriatian sword. Why do I keep using that term? Even in Revelation we see that. The idea is it's a long sword, a javelin. He doesn't use that. He uses a surgical instrument. He goes in and removes only what needs to be removed, but he leaves everything else intact. And so that's what he's doing here when it says that they're gonna be cut to the heart and they're grinding teeth. He's removing those things. But what is he ultimately trying to do here? Does Jesus Christ not want these men to come to him? Is his heart not that they would too surrender their lives and become born again believers in Christ? And that's why I would be remiss in this passage to, to not say if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, today's the day. Don't let another moment go before you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just like these men, we can get off. We can think we're on the right path. We, we, we can believe it with everything we are. But God also told us he gave every one of us a measure of faith. And if we humble ourselves before his word, if we come to him and ask him to be our master and our savior, everybody loves the crown. Not everybody loves to pick up the cross. But that's what Christ said. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. And I believe that's exactly where the seed began to be planted for Saul of Tarsus, right in this room. And I'd be, I wouldn't believe right now that that seed isn't being planted in somebody's heart here this morning. Whether you've backslidden, whether you hadn't accepted Christ, whether this is going out on the radio and they hear it there or through the website, just hearing the word of God is what draws us unto salvation. And if that's you, all you need to do is repent and turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I need you. I'm a sinner. I, I blew it, man. But God, thank you for dying on the cross that I might be restored to you for all of eternity, past, present, and future. And nothing and no one can rip me out of your hand. And that's the greatest news ever. Nothing can ever separate you from Jesus Christ. We, guess we mess up, you're gonna blow it, even us, you know, you're a Christian here now, you're gonna blow it. I'm gonna blow it. But we repent and we get right, right, right relationship with God. Nothing can do that. that. That's why we have people that are backslidden. They accepted Christ at one time, but they blew it. Okay, guess what? We all blow it. God doesn't look at one sin and go, oh, your sin's worse than another. No, we all blew it. You didn't keep the law. God wants to restore hearts. He's in the heart restoration business. That's what he does. And so if, if you've accepted Christ or if you're backslidden and now you're, please let us know. We want to get discipleship materials into your hand. We're not interested in collecting your names and all that. It's great that you're here and we would love to have you receive our emails. And things, but we just want to get a Bible in your hand if you don't have one. We want to come and encourage you and welcome you into the kingdom of God. We're brothers and sisters for all eternity now and nothing can separate us. We don't get to choose, we just get to love. Isn't that awesome? Thank you Jesus for that. So as we see being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven here, because they, again, they're gnashing their face. What's, what's, what's his response? But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Does that draw something in some of your minds? Standing. Where is he supposed to be? seated. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Circle that standing there. There's important God speaking to us. 
we see over 16 times in the New Testament that he was seated. As a matter of fact, just, I know we're, we're sort of short on time right now, but turn, turn to Hebrews. Look at chapter one, verse three. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says, who being of the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of majesty and high. So why is Jesus Christ standing at the right hand right now? Or why is he standing like that? You see, he sees that at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, the God-man, standing at the right hand of God. Why was he seated? What's seated speaking to? Teleo in the Greek or telestai. What's that mean? It's finished, paid in full, done. When you're seated, what's that show? If you're coming to dinner and you have guests coming over, we all stand up, we, we help people find a seat, and then what do we do? We sit and we begin, right? We rest. It's completed. It's completed. That's what seating means. But here Jesus is standing. Why was he standing? To receive Stephen. He was standing to receive Stephen. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the circumstances of where they were coming. They knew he was going to be stoned. God is never caught off guard. Jesus is never caught off guard. And he's a compassionate God. That when he knows he saw Stephen and I, and I bet, or Stephen saw Jesus and I bet his hands were like this. I don't know you be Bereans. I don't think we can, we won't know until we're in heaven. We'll go back and watch it in the video library of heaven. But I bet his hands were outreached. Like, come to me, my son. Come to me. And you know what's interesting? Fox Books of Martyrs. If you've ever read Fox Books of Martyrs, book of, my books, book of Martyrs, plural. If you ever read that, many of the accounts that you read in that book have a similar sight at the end when they're just about to go as they're being martyred, witnessed for Christ. They talk about how they see Jesus and he's often standing and it's like he's coming to them with their hand, reaching out to them as their son, their daughter, their wife, their husband's life are about to be extinguished from this earth. Absent with the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, present with the Lord, it's a blink of an eye. Your eye closes, you're in the very presence of Jesus. But this is what they see as a vision. Go back and look at Fox Book of Martyrs. It's very interesting. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. This idea of standing is that he's reaching out to Peter. Or I mean, excuse me, Stephen. Forgive me. He's reaching out to Stephen. And he's, welcome home, son. Welcome home. He's preparing him. He's giving him what he needs. And he's seeing this vision, right? And he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. That means they literally put their fingers in their ears. That seems a little immature. And ran at him with one accord. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't handle that, they, that Jesus was King of kings and Lord of lords. It says then in verse 60, or excuse me, verse 59, and they stoned Wait a minute, back up. I'm sorry, I got ahead of it. And their eyes, ears, and they ran it with one accord. Verse 58, and they cast him out of the city. If you understand what that's talking about, there's the sheep gate right in the area that they would have been meeting in the council, and the sheep gate's about 15 feet down. What was common, and they did have the right to do this under the law, if you blasphemed God while in the temple or in the council court, 
you could, even though you, they were not allowed to take life normally, that's why they had to go to Pontius Pilate with Jesus Christ. If you did that in the temple, which re- remember with me, was Jesus Christ silent when they charged him? He was silent, wasn't he? And that's why they had to take him to Pontius Pilate because the Romans had to give them the authority to crucify. But if you did blaspheme God while in the temple, they did have jurisdiction. So what they would do is if you were there, they would push you as you were before the council, they would push you out. And the idea is you would live. You would fall 14 or 15 feet and you would hit the ground. Maybe broken leg, broken back, something like that. But you'd live. And the idea behind is that you would repent. That you would deny what you had said before that was blasphemous. And that you would return to God that way. And so they pushed Stephen out of this window, right? Or this, it's not a window, it's a gate. They pushed him out of the sheep gate. And basically he falls down right there. And they begin to stone him. And the first, according to the law, the first one that was bringing the accusation was the first one, first two people, excuse me, had to pick up the stone and throw the stone at him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes, very important detail detail here, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we're introduced to Saul. This is all part of ministry boot camp for Saul here. And they stoned Stephen and he, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down. Now the idea here isn't that he's standing. In the Greek, the idea is that he's already down. He's laid out flat. But what he does is he tries to get himself up into a posture of kneeling. So he's like laid out. They're stoning him. He's just trying to make with the little bit of strength he has left. He's trying to get himself to a kneeling, a prostrated position before God Almighty. He's trying to get himself prostrated like that. And he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, what is this a picture of? Who's this remind you of? Jesus. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do as he was hanging on the cross. And then he gave up the ghost, the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of falling asleep isn't Stephen taking a nap here. This is speaking that he died. You see, and I believe that as Saul watched this, the, the clothes were brought right before as they were going to go out and they're stoning him. They're brought to Saul, Tarsus. He's sitting here watching this. He's thinking about what his master Gamaliel had already said. Hey, if this is of God, you can't stop this. If this is of man, watch out. Because it'll die off if it's a man. Get nothing to do with it. But if it's of God, don't try to stop it. That's ringing in his ears. He's now watching right before his very eyes this man being killed. And yet he did signs and wonders and miracles. He's heard a number of times about Jesus at this point. Gamaliel actually was favorable to Nicodemus. He allowed him to live in his house after he lost everything. Third richest man lost everything for the sake of Christ because nobody would associate with him. And so he sits there and he's looking at this. And I have no doubt that Saul Tarsus was thinking, what does this mean? And I believe this very act, it hardened his heart to some extent because he became angry. And if you look over in chapter nine and look at verse five and we're closing with this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is when he's on the road to Damascus. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? Because this has been just racking around in that brain 
As much as you research, as much as you study, as much as you know about the prophets, as much as you know about prophecy and what would be fulfilled, as much as you know about Isaiah 53 and everything that was poured out through all of scripture, you're a learned man, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and you're seeing the truth and you can't let it go. And it's driving you to madness. Isn't it interesting? This is where I believe the seeds get planted where Saul starts to have that battle inside himself. You you know what I'm talking about? You ever seen those that are struggling with accepting Christ? It's an internal battle. They know what Christ is saying. They know what's going on, but there's tension there. It isn't time for us to go up and Bible thump them and keep saying, you need this, you need that. Come to church and we do that. No, you know what we do? What do we do? We pray. We pray, God, move on this heart. Bind the enemy from coming against and distracting and the follower stealing these seeds. And even a man like Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, one of the greatest evangelists, pastors, teachers for the Gentiles, who knows how God is going to use you like he did Gamaliel or like he's doing Stephen right now to birth the next Paul. Maybe it'll be here. Maybe it'll be someone in your family in your life. But don't you want to be used by God? Even when it looks like the person has a rejected hard heart, if you would have judged Paul that day or Saul of Tarsus, you would have said, no way. But God knew. We serve an all-knowing, all-powerful, great God. Amen?